We're going to continue the series of Matthew, as I said, and we're going to be talking about judgment and the end of the world. Part one, judgment and the end of the world, part one. But before we continue, let me pray for us one more time. Father, again, I thank you for this morning, and I pray that you would help us, God, to understand, Lord, um, Lord, when we talk about end times, things can be kind of confusing and people have different opinions and sometimes um, differing opinions can be held quite strongly. But I pray, God, that you would just help us to capture the thrust of what you are saying and to heed the warnings, God, that you want to give us, God, to be ready for when you come. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to begin in verse 37. But let me ask you a question. If you knew Jesus was coming back at 5 p.m., what would you do? Think about it. What would you do? Huh? Yeah? A lot of people would panic if they believed it. If you were, yeah, I was good. I was about to say, if I was honest, there were some people that you procrastinate that you would say, you know what? I got to tell them. I got to put. I got to put their nose in it and say it's now or never. People that you love, that you care about, you would. It would change the way you think about things because you realize the time is short. Well, the fact is, the time is short. And we never know when it's coming. You see, there's... What we see, and what we'll see over the next two weeks, is that there is both a distance and an imminence to the final judgment. And I believe that that tension is intentional. On the one hand, He doesn't just want us to sit on our hands and do nothing. Right? Thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be right this second. He doesn't want us to sit on our hands and do nothing. But on the other hand... He doesn't want us to get lazy when we think it's far off, which is what we tend to do. There's a distance and an imminence. And the judgment, the final judgment and the coming of of Jesus and the end of the world is meant then to stir us then to urgent labor today. And that's what we're going to talk about as we talk about judgment and the end of the world from Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 24, 14. If you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through chapter 24, verse 14. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The word of God you may be seated. So we move on to one of the most debated passages in the Bible. Um, and I will probably get a little more technical than I normally do just to defend my reading of it. Um, but I'm going to try to make it as clear as possible. And I encourage you to go back and to read over this passage very carefully over the next two weeks, all of chapter 24, so that you can begin putting together what I'm trying to say to you. Um, we begin here with Jesus's lament of Jerusalem at the end of chapter 23. And so I divided it up that way intentionally because I've been trying to communicate over the past several weeks that Jesus's, uh, um, conflict with the religious leaders of Israel has reached its climax. And he, he, they questioned him, then he questioned them and put them to silence. And then it, finally and climactically, he pronounces these terrible woes upon the, is the, upon the, uh, the Jewish leadership. And that serves as kind of God pronouncing his judgment upon the Jewish leadership for their hypocrisy. And that concludes... As chapter 3, as we read just now, with Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. But I, I included that in the sermon this week instead of last week because it transitions between the two. Why would Jesus lament over Jerusalem after pronouncing woes upon the religious leaders? Because God was going to judge Jerusalem for the unbelief of Israel. And that's the connection. A woe is a pronouncement of judgment. So Jesus laments over Jerusalem because he knows that destruction of Jerusalem is coming, which he talks about in Matthew chapter 24. And so he's pronouncing his woe over them, but at the same time, he weeps over Jerusalem, right? He weeps over them. Israel was hard-hearted and stiff-necked, the Bible says. From, from, they were stiff-necked against Moses, all those thousands of years ago, they were stiff-necked against the prophets. And now, to top it all off, they're stiff-necked against the ministry of God's own Son, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. God had been patient with them literally for thousands of years, but, you know, to put it bluntly, rejecting God's Son is the last straw. Many did repent and believe in Jesus, and they would be saved, but by and large, the Jews were just like their forefathers, and climactic judgment from God would be coming upon them. 
ultimately in the obliteration of Jerusalem and the destruction of the, the temple, which took place exactly as Jesus said it would in 70 AD by the Romans, which utterly destroyed Israel as a nation and destroyed the temple worship of Israel to this very day. Right now, a Muslim mosque sits on top of the Temple Mount. This causes Jesus to mourn and weep. Why? Because he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You see, God had been patient with them for literally thousands of years. That's a little more patient than I am. And he's, he's like a mother hen trying to gather her chicks. And Jesus is saying, come under my wings. Come under the shelter of my wings. But they were not willing. They weren't willing. God is patient, church. God is patient. He's long-suffering. But you see, there's a point where patience must run out. And the reason for that is, is that you can overlook wrongs for so long that you neglect to show how wrong the wrongs are. There's a point where patience, there's a point where patience ends up saying that evil isn't bad. And God's never going to do that. So God is patient, but there's a time when God's patience will be up. He cannot let people continue to despise his infinitely glorious name for so long without ultimately profaning his name himself, and he won't do that. The point is this, is that maybe there's someone in here this morning and you've been hardening your heart against God for a long time and God has been really patient to you and God wants to tell you this morning, it's time to turn. Because my patience won't last forever. And you have to know that. You have to know that. God's patience won't last forever. You see, Jesus, he said, was like a hen gathering his chicks, gathering her brood under her wings, but they were not willing. I pray today that God would make you willing. Make you willing to come under the wings of Jesus because Jesus will come and he will shelter you from the coming wrath. He will shelter you from it. He will bear it for you himself, which is what he did on the cross for all who trust in him. Okay? He will bear it. He will shelter you from it. But what happens when you refuse the mercy of God? Jesus said, see, your house is left to you desolate. What does that mean? Well, as we said, uh, just a moment, we're going to talk about it. Uh, the, the, the disciples point out the temple and Jesus talks about how it's going to be destroyed. Okay? That in, Roman, in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple just like in 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed the temple because they violated God's covenant over and over and over again. Okay? And yet, even after that, God gave them another chance. Even after the destruction of Babylon, by Babylon, he gave them another chance through his son, Jesus But when they reject the Son, that's it. That's it. 
Jesus obliterated Jerusalem once again as a judgment against Israel. And so in verse 39 there, when Jesus says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference to Psalm 118. And it's a statement that was said by the crowds earlier as Jesus entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Okay? Uh, As a peaceful king on the donkey's colt. But Jesus says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, there's debate about what that means, but I'm inclined to read it with many other commentators that preceding Christ's return, a number of Jews, uh, a large number of Jews will be will be saved, will be converted. Before Christ come, I believe that'll be one of the signs that Jesus is coming back is that finally. After millennia. Many Jews start believing in Jesus. And I, I think Paul teaches that quite clearly in Romans chapter 11. Which, by the way, there is a, quite a growing and strong Messianic Jewish movement in the world. Just something for you guys to think about. So what's our takeaway? Our takeaway is this. God is patient and merciful, but the time of patient is only so long. There were those in Israel who believed in Jesus, but they were a remnant. They were a chosen few. Okay, by and large, Israel did not believe in Jesus and not repent. And that's the issue that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Okay, uh, about how could it be that God would re- essentially reject his own people? But he didn't reject his own people. He, he saved the chosen remnant. Okay, but by and large, they rebelled. And so judgment upon Israel would be coming. And you say, well, what does this have to do with me? Because we're not Jews, we're Gentiles. But that's actually what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. If God did not spare his own people for rejecting his son, what do you think he'll do to Gentiles who reject his son? God is patient. He is merciful. There is a sense in which the rejection of the Jews means that the gospel can go to the whole world so that the whole world can come in. So that God's salvation, which went first to the Jews, now goes to all the world. But see, just as the Jews had a time of patience, and then that time of patience is up, the Gentiles have a time of patience. But there will be a day when the time of patience is up. And what God did to Jerusalem in 70 AD, he will do to the whole world when he comes back. And it'll be worse than anyone can imagine. But for those who believe, it'll be glory and honor and praise and reward because we trusted in him and followed him. So the time of repentance and faith is today. You know, those Jews who lived during Jesus's day, they probably thought no big deal. Right? No big deal. Till the Romans showed up. People... Jesus said it will be like this. It will be like the days of Noah. We're going to talk about that. No big deal till the sky splits open. And then it's too late. Today is the day of salvation. If you're listening to this sermon right now in whatever capacity, that means God has given you another chance to turn to him. Take it before it's too late. So number one, judgment. Number two, the end of the world. So Jesus, um, there in chapter 24, 
uh, it's what's called the Olivet Discourse, because it says there he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately. And they said, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so we have the Olivet Discourse. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a version of the Olivet Discourse. They're all slightly different. But Matthew's is the longest and the most extensive by far. So we have here the, uh, the most detailed recorded explanation that we have of Jesus on the end times uh, that there is in all the Bible. And it begins with their question. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Verse 3. I think the question is very important for our interpretation of this passage. So you need to go and you need to read this passage and just expose yourself to a little bit because there's lots of different views on this passage and you should explore them, maybe get a good study Bible. Okay, maybe just do a little Google search and see how many different interpretations there are and what the arguments are because I can't go through all of them. I'm just going to give you mine and why I believe it's the right one. But I believe the question is important because... The rest of the, the chapter there is Jesus' answer to the question, right? And so if we can understand the question correctly, we can understand what Jesus is trying to answer. And I think that's going to give us insight into the interpretation of the passage as a whole. The question in Matthew is essentially in two parts. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Well, the first part of the question has to be discussing the destruction of Jerusalem because Jesus has just said no stone will be left upon another, talking about the city of Jerusalem. And then they ask, when will these things be? So their question, the first part of the question, in my mind, clearly is about the destruction of Jerusalem. The second part of the question says, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So the question essentially is a question of timing, is timing of chronology. So Matthew 24, then, is Jesus' answer to the question of timing, of chronology, of when these things would take place. Okay? Of when these things would take place. Now, if you compare the way Matthew puts the question with the way Mark and Luke puts the question, it's slightly different. And, and it seems to, and, but all three, in my opinion, seem to imply the same thing. And that is that the disciples seem to believe that the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age would come at the same time. That they were, they were simultaneous events. Go read the question in Mark and Luke, and it seems that they assume that it's the same time. 
Okay, and even in even in Matthew, I think it, it can be it can be read that way. The disciples most likely believed that the destruction of Jerusalem and that the uh, that the end of the age would be at the same time would be simultaneous. Okay, and so um, and so because of that, I believe that Jesus's answer to that answer to their question is basically addressing that primary misconception. The misconception that the end of the age and the destruction of Jerusalem were simultaneous. See, it makes sense from a Jewish perspective because literally the temple is the center of their universe, right? It's where God inhabits their nation. It's where God dwells in the midst of his people. It's literally the center of the nation, the center of worship, the center of the Jewish religion. For, for the temple to be destroyed essentially is the end of the world for a Jew. Right? That's not, that's, not, that's not an overstatement. That's not wrong, crazy for a Jew to think that. Okay? But Jesus is addressing this misconception. And I believe that's the best way to read the remainder of Matthew 24. Is that Jesus is answering this question and addressing the misconception that they, that they think the end is going to be sooner than it really is going to be. They think the end is going to come with the destruction of Jerusalem when really it's going to be later than that. And, and I'll explain, and, and understand, understood in that light, I think, I think the rest of, of, of chapter 24 makes a, lot of, makes a lot of sense, especially the way Jesus phrases it. Okay, he begins here, um, the first thing he says there in addressing the question, he says, See that no one leads you astray. Many false Christs will come, verse 24 and 25. Okay, so how does this answer the question? Well, how does this answer the question? Well, he's implying, he's implying that, his re- that the end of the age, right, would be attended by his return, right? That the end of the age would be attended by his return. And in light of that, he's warning them of false Christ. Because when a false Christ showed up, they'd be tempted to think, it's the end, right? So obviously, he's, he's implying that uh, his return marks the end of the age, and he's saying, but don't let them lead you astray because false Christ will come. And you're going to think it's the end before it really is the end. Okay? And so that's the thing, is beware of false Christ. And many false Christs have come. And many, there are many people today who say that I'm the Christ. There are people today who say that. There are people today who say, well, I know when Jesus is coming back. They don't. And anyone who tells you that, and especially anyone who tells you to give them money because they know when Jesus come back, is lying to you. And we'll have faced severe judgment from God. You can bank on that. Alright? But false Christ will come. People will come pretending to know what they're talking about concerning Jesus. Don't believe them. And the only way you're going to be able to discern the truth from the false is if you've read this book. And so if you get bamboozled by some liar yes that's on them but guess what God's going to put that on you you had one of these didn't you why didn't you read it it's about me it tells you the truth false Christs are coming don't be led astray the second thing that could potentially and so again what is Jesus' argument Jesus' argument is this you're going to be tempted to think it's sooner than it is, but it's not. False Christ will come, but it's not yet. 
The second thing, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. International turmoil would come. Some of these would be so severe that you would be tempted to think it's the end. But it's not. Right? We think our days are so bad and our days, they're not super great right now. But guess what? How many of you were alive during World War II? Those were bad days. Worse than now. Spanish flu. Bubonic plague. There have been some bad days, y'all. And, and believers during those time periods would have been completely justified to think, you know what, it can't get worse than this. This is the end. But it wasn't. It wasn't the end. Terrible, widespread calamities would come upon the world. They did come upon the world. They came upon the world in those days immediately after Jesus' ascension that the disciples lived through. Right? And you would be tempted to think it was the end, but it was not the end. No, they are the beginning of the birth pains. They're the beginning of the birth pains. But the end is not yet. Okay? Again, I believe Jesus' intention is there to say, again to say, you will think it's the end before it is, before it really is. The next thing he says is that we would see turmoil, not just in the world, not just in the world, but in the church. But in the church. Christians will be persecuted. That's what Jesus has said. And that's happened, that's happened throughout all of human history. Right? And it was happening, <clears throat> it was happening during the days of the apostles. And the book of Revelation is clearly speaking into a, 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 a season um, in the Christian church where they're being persecuted. And I personally believe that right before the end, there will be severe worldwide Christian persecution. And we might be setting up for that right now. But Jesus is saying that before the end comes, there will be turmoil, not just in the world, but in the church. Right? Now, some of these persecutions throughout history have been so severe, it would have been very easy for the Christians to think, hey, this must be the end. And we wouldn't blame them. But Jesus is saying these things are going to happen. Things are going to disintegrate even within the church. Many people are going to fall away even within the church. People are going to betray one another even within the church. Look around the room. When the pressure squeezes on the church and we have to gather in secret away from the government eyes... Who in this room is going to tell them where we are? Could be, could be somebody in this room. Because Jesus said they're going to betray one another. It's going to happen. You think when the pressure squeezes on the church that everyone... No, the, the, the wolves will be flushed out from the sheep. And we're going to see... Who really believes this? You know, in World War II, uh, one of my, probably one of my favorite books that I have to talk about all the time is The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom. And one of the things that she talks about is that when the, the, uh, 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 Germany took over Holland, and, and so there were all of a sudden, <clears throat> never, never think a totalitarian government is a good idea. Read a history book, for goodness sakes. 
it never works out well when the government thinks it knows better than you do. Okay? And what, what happened? The, because the totalitarian government is too insecure to handle any kind of dissent. And so anybody who showed any type of lack of sympathy with the German socialist movement was a target. And so what did you have in Corrie Ten Boom while she was hiding Jews? What did you have to do? What did you have to look out for the, the Germans? No, you had to look out for the Dutch people. The neighbors who were watching everything you did. And you never knew who was going to rat you out to the government. Your, your, your neighbor, the, your, your grocer, your librarian, your, your fellow church member who sat in the pew behind you. You never knew who was going to rat you out. That was a real experience that they went through. And you would think it's the end. But the end was not yet. The end will not be yet. Things will get bad before they get better. False prophets will arise and lead people astray. And again, this is in the context of the church. So he's talking about false prophets within the church. There there will arise... People claiming to speak for God within the church who will lead people astray. It's not a question of if. They're out there right now. And again, there's only one way of knowing the difference, and it's knowing what's in this book. That's it. That's the only way. And then finally, we have, I think, one of the most chilling verses in all the Bible, verse 12. Because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold. Because of the hate and disdain and persecution and hardship, because of all those things, when people experience those things, it tends to create lovelessness and hardness of heart. The sin and evil we see and experience ourselves, the more sin and evil we see and experience ourselves, the more we are tempted to do the same thing. The more people wrong you, the more you feel justified in wronging others. That might fly with the world, but it doesn't fly with God. The colder people treat us, the colder we will be tempted to become. How can people be treated evilly and cruelly and not become evil and cruel in response? How? The Holy Spirit. It's the only way. The Holy Spirit is the only way that people can treat you with cruelty and you not become a cruel person yourself. Only the Holy Spirit of God can enable a person to return good for evil. And that will be the sign. That will be that you know, that will be how you know you belong to Jesus because that's what Jesus did. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. If evil makes you evil, evil has won. Only the Holy Spirit can make you return good for evil. That's why it doesn't fly. That's why it doesn't fly. I see that. I hear this argument. I hear this sometimes even from Christians. Well, they did that. If they do that to us, I'm doing this. Well, you go talk to Jesus about that. No one's going to know you're a Christian by the way you take revenge. 
people will know you belong to Christ by the way you return good for evil. And the worse it gets, the harder that's going to be to do. And the more desperately it's going to be needed from the church. And so the only way we can, we don't want to be the ones that Jesus talks about, the love of many will grow cold. We don't want to be them. We have to set it in our heart and in our mind that we're going to return good for evil and be ready. Be ready for it. If evil turns you evil and makes you fall away, you're lost. Why? Because Jesus said, the, the one who endures to the end will be saved. How do you know a person is a Christian? He endures to the end. You endure to the end. You die still professing faith. That's how you know. You hang on to the end. But if you know God, you trust God, you believe in God, you can endure suffering, right? Because we know that because we know that death isn't the end. It's just the beginning. Right? And that Jesus is going to right all wrongs. So I don't have to. Right? Someone wrongs me, I don't have to deal with it. Why? Because God's going to deal with it. One way or another. He's either going to deal with that person in judgment, or he's going to save them just like he saved me. But it's not mine to deal with. I don't have to deal with it. Pressure's off. Okay? Only he who endures to the end will be saved. And then finally we arrive at verse 14. Where Jesus says, the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So do you see what Jesus is saying? This is what I think he's saying. He's addressing their misconception that they think the end will be sooner than it is, most likely simultaneous with the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, no, it's going to be further away than you think. It won't be the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's how you know when the end is. The gospel will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. That is the sign. That is the sign of the end. The gospel is proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You say, Pastor, that sounds, that sounds pretty convincing. Well, go talk to some other people. There are people, including one of my dear friends who asked me about my upcoming sermon, Jay, I love you, bro, who has different opinions than me on this passage. And there are some people who think that 14... Verse 14 can be understood. There are people who think that all of Matthew 24 was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. There are people who think that. That even the, the second coming, the part about Jesus coming in the clouds and all that, they believe all that took place in the destruction of Jerusalem, essentially. Okay? In, a kind of a, in kind of a coming in judgment spiritual sense. Okay? Um, I'm going to tell you some reasons why they think that and why I think it's, in, it's incorrect, okay? This may get a little technical, but just track with me here, all right? Jesus says that the end won't come until the gospel is proclaimed as a testimony to the whole world. That is the sign. That's the sign, okay? That's the sign, all right? Could it be construed in such a way that... It means that there's a sense in which the gospel was proclaimed to the world before the destruction of Jerusalem. Can it be construed that way? The answer is yes, it can. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. One is because when it says the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, the Greek word, there are two words for world in Greek primarily, cosmos and oikumene, okay? 
Cosmos is generally used to refer to the whole world, but not always. Oikumene is generally used, or not generally, but can be used to refer just to an empire, all right? Or the, like, for example, the Roman world, the known Roman world, all right? But it can refer to the whole, to whole world as well. The Greek word used here is the word oikumene, not cosmos. And because of that, some people say, well, it just refers to the known Roman world. And to support that argument, um, they refer to Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where it says, where Paul says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So in Colossians 1, 6, Paul speaks of some sense in which the gospel has gone to the whole world. Interestingly there, he uses the word cosmos, not oikumene. Okay, but the, the, the point is, is that there's a sense in which Paul could say that the gospel has gone to the whole world. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? And should we read it this way to think that the gospel has gone to the whole world in some sense before the destruction of Jerusalem? And then all of Matthew 24 is about the destruction of Jerusalem. I think that's not the best interpretation. One, because both words can refer to, both words can refer either to just an empire or realm and to the whole world. And so it's not decisive because both words can mean either. So that argument's not decisive. Second of all, I think it's better to interpret Matthew with Matthew better better than to interpret Matthew with Paul. And there's another passage in Matthew that more closely connects with this passage. And And the passage in Matthew that very closely connects with this passage is the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have in Matthew another passage that talks about both the gospel going to all nations and it refers to the end of the age. And if we read Matthew in light of Matthew, what does that tell us? It tells us that in Matthew 19, what end of the age is he talking about? Is Jesus saying that he's going to be with them to make disciples unto the destruction of Jerusalem? I don't think so. I think he's saying, I'm going to be with you to make disciples unto the end of the world. The whole world. And so when you take that interpretation and take it back to Matthew 24, I think it's clear that what Jesus is saying is that the, the, the sign that the, that the end of the world is here is that the gospel will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. That is to the whole world. The clearest sign that the end has come, that the end is coming, is that the gospel will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. That is the precondition. Which is why the passage that I read in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, said that all nations would come down and worship God. Why? Because the gospel is going to go out and everywhere people believe in King Jesus, they become true citizens of the kingdom of heaven and worshipers of God. And from among people of all nations, God is going to call priests and Levites, people to serve and to minister to him. All nations are going to worship God. That is the mission. That is the great commission. That is the mission that we are called to as a church. Those nations there, the word nation uh, mean, doesn't mean like political, modern political states. It means a people group. It means a group of people associated by like a tribe, a culture, language, 
Okay? It means people groups. Okay? And so, as we fulfill the mission of God, we are, we are being used by God to bring about the necessary precondition for the end of the world. And that's part of the reason why we do missions. Because the, because the success of the mission is guaranteed. It's not if. There's no if. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we do missions. That's why we give. That's why we go. It's so that all nations will worship Him. And that the end may come. If you're paying attention, if you're paying attention, the last 200 years has brought about an explosion in world missions. Explosion in world missions. There are believers on every continent on earth. Well, I don't know about Antarctica, but maybe. Who knows? Believers. In terms of people groups, there are relatively few remaining people groups that are considered unreached. There are there. Are, there, are, there, are there. But there's relatively few. We don't know God's direct definition of all these things. But let me tell you something. We're close. We're close. Which is why you can go almost anywhere on earth right now and find a follower of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said this was going to happen. Because he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And when the gospel has gone out as a, as a, um, has been proclaimed among all nations, the end will come. What does that tell me, church? It tells me the end is close, in my opinion. The end is close. Could be closer than we think. Could be within our lifetimes. Your children's lifetimes, your grandchildren's lifetime. Are they ready? Are you ready? So what do we do with this information? I believe Jesus summed it up really well in Acts chapter 1 before he left his disciples. He says, when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There it is. The end of the earth. I think it's clear. I think it's clear. In other words, the disciples, just in Acts chapter 1 as in Matthew chapter 24, same disciples, right? They wanted to know times about the end. Jesus explained some things to them, but they're getting a little caught up about it. And that's what some people do. Some people get real caught up about eschatology and about the timing of things. And Jesus says, look, it's not for you to know all the times and seasons that have been appointed by my Father. Guess what? 
You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. In other words, don't overfret about the timing of things. You get busy. You get to work. The Holy Spirit is coming upon you. If you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So go be my witnesses. Because why? Because the end is coming. Because the fullness of time is coming. Uh, 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 Luke, in his Olivet Discourse, and Luke talks about, uh, talks about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. In Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about, uh, talks about uh, the, a fullness of time coming. Uh, the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. There will be a day coming when the... <laughs> When the last person who's going to get saved gets saved. And that's it. Last person to get the chance to hear is going to hear. And that's it. It's over. The end comes. Our business is not to worry about when the end is coming. Our business is to get busy. Telling people that the end is coming. Telling people who Jesus is and what he has done so that they can be ready. So that the precondition can be filled for the end to come. It's close. I hope we're ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...